We're back to the Neil Haley Show, also the media giant effect. I'm excited to welcome the program professional soccer player, former pro soccer player, but an amazing guy and also entrepreneur, Jesse Bradley. Jesse, thanks for stopping by. Last time we talked about the story, man, and you overcame things like so many professional athletes overcome to the level that, you know, you look at, we don't figure out what we want to do. We go through these struggles. We don't know, hey, you know, I was doing this for so long. And sometimes we never figure ourselves at all. So you saw your faith, you move forward, and you have all these amazing goals and dreams to accomplish. What does 2023 sound like for Jesse Bradley? And like, again, I still, it's 2022 still here. I'm not wishing it out, but tell me. That's it, Neil. I appreciate your show, your passion, and how you just bring people on board who are going to add value, encourage, inspire. And in my life, you know, those lowest points have become a fuel and they forged a passion and purpose in my life that I get to live out now. And I really discovered during COVID, I want to share, bring hope to more people. I want to see people empowered. I want to see people who can then cultivate hope habits. You know, hope is relational and the quality of our lives are determined by relationships, family, friends, coworkers, also I think spiritually with God. But in addition to the relational, there are specific intentional and practical steps we can take. And we've been doing digital campaigns in 2022 and it's been so fruitful. You know, right now we're in the middle of the World Cup and I've been an analyst for CBS Sports, which is a lot of fun to talk soccer. But then also we launched Hope Campaigns and the traction that those have gained, it's really blown our minds because you know millions of people are going through the content and then we have a different focus on each one. Sometimes we focused on marriage and how to strengthen your marriage. Sometimes we focused on hope habits. We've talked about adoption and even spiritually. And the last uh, campaign that we ran spiritually there were over 200,000 people, this is globally, that said they want to start a relationship with God. So right now, we're in the middle of some campaigns. We're following up. You know when you have a plan on paper and then the reality exceeds it? Yes. And you're trying to make those shifts and adjustments. It's like, okay, how do we cover this? What do we do here? And continually learning. I think making those mid-course adjustments in any business, any profession, noticing what worked this year, what we learned from it. But I think the potential digitally, and I say this, anyone who's listening, whatever space you're in, whether it's personal or business, what can happen online? And that can involve social media, website, app. It's like historically when the printing press came out and all of a sudden doors flew open. I mean, right now, the impact, it's exponential. And mm -hmm. I mean, Neil, you see this, uh, radio, television. And what used to traditionally be, you know, grab a show and it's only on radio or television. Right. Now the multiplication happens because people share it. It's on social media. It's video. It's YouTube. And when yeah. things go viral, it's gone. And then that's so much fun because you see so many change lives. So what do you think? Uh, like you talk about the goal in the campaign. So what do people you're setting up for the campaign? Is it for to, to, for an event? What is it? Jesse. Yeah, we we believe hope has a lot of different ways that it can play out in people's lives. And we think local and global. So we're very involved in Seattle. We have a lot of different events. We have a lot of resources we give away. And then globally, we're tackling different initiatives, like we're sponsoring kids in Cambodia uh, so they can have their needs met. We're also providing clean water in Africa. We're collaborating with World Vision. So, you know, hope wow. has practical expressions. We want to see everyone have clean water in Africa by 2030. So those are some big picture goals. You start out, build on islands of strength, more victories, and then there's momentum, more people get involved. Collaboration and partnerships are where it's at. And then in addition to that, uh, we're providing free content for people because people want things on their phone. They want it convenient. They want videos. Uh, right now, shorts are king as well, so less than a minute. But we provide practical stuff, and we create a new website, uh, jessebradley.org, revivinghope.com, either one. People can go there, and everything's free. Uh, people want free resources. So we have a 30-day Strengthen Your Marriage free video course. We have a free course seven days and those seven days, one habit each day, and it's reviving hope in people's lives. And they're things that are practical. They they can do it. Uh, you know, I say this four stages with learning a new habit so people won't get discouraged because it doesn't always just click in. I know January comes, people have some resolutions, new habits. The first one is unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know, right? Some habits you didn't even know they'd be good for you, they exist. And then the next step is you have conscious incompetence, meaning you start to try it and you just can't get it. 
And then you have conscious competence. We're starting to learn it. You got to be really intentional, focused, but it's starting to come. And then you have unconscious competence where it just, it's natural. It's like tying your shoe. You know, I didn't, when I was a goalkeeper and I didn't know how to catch, I didn't even know the W was the proper technique, right? And then I tried to catch a ball and there was no W with my thumbs. It was kind of spread out and I dropped the ball. And then I was overthinking about the W, but I, I was getting my W on the ball. And then lastly, it's just natural. I'm diving the upper corner and I'm catching it with the W. So any habit, and that's true, you know, with gratitude. I say a gritty gratitude, learn how to give thanks when you don't feel thankful. Yeah. And just start with 10 things you're thankful for today. When you give that gratitude, you're going to focus on what you don't, what you do have instead of what you don't have. It's going to change you on the inside. You're going to become, you know, um, a more positive attitude. You're going to see the world differently. And that habit of gratitude, that is like a gateway for a lot of other things that can happen in your life. Um, one other one I, I think is really important, forgiving people fully every day. Don't let the sun go down with resentment and bitterness. That's poison for you. Don't carry it. So that works in marriage. That's been a key in, in my marriage. I think that's key in every marriage, conflict resolution. But you've got to talk about it. Have honest and humble conversations because that's where the fruit is. But I'll, I'll tell you, when you forgive everyone fully, it doesn't mean what they did was okay. But you're making a choice. Uh, if you don't forgive and you hold on to resentment, you're putting yourself in a jail and you got to step out of that. So this is an intentional choice to forgive fully every day. Healing is a process. That doesn't happen right away. But make the first step, which is forgiveness and let go of that grudge so that you can really love people, you know. And so these are the kind of habits. Again, you kind of get the scope. It's personal. It's local. It's digital. It's global. And you know, I'm someone, it's hard to say no sometimes. That's probably a good goal for 2023 is just what to say no to. But I'm energized by all this stuff. And yeah, I'll right. tell you, your pain points can become your greatest points of motivation. And because I didn't grow up with any clue about God, when I learned, you know, how good God is and how much he loves me, it's like, I want people to know. Uh, my parents got divorced. So I want to strengthen marriages and see people flourish in marriage. I also want to see adoption happen because no kid should be without a forever family. You know, there's different things I can point to. You know, I, my career ended tragically in Africa with professional soccer. I love to encourage athletes. Uh, we have faith and family with Seattle Sounders here, Tacoma Stars. So wow. whatever's happening in your life that is uh, really disappointing, painful, low points, what can you learn from that? And then... There's a rebuilding that happens, and I believe that's what's deeply fulfilling is when you can help people who are in that same situation as you. And that's what I love to, to turn around and be a part of, whether that's pastor, speaker, author, you know, whatever the means are. I don't really see, care. I'm, I'm, impressed. I'm, I'm absolutely impressed by you, and even more than the last time, because you really are telling us what's coming up. I know you as a humble person are going to tell the story. We're not going to talk about all these initiatives you have, and they're fantastic initiatives. And you're doing so much in the community of Seattle and in all over the world. And it's just very, very impressive. What do you want to tell our listeners and viewers about like what they should this. think about to do? Go ahead. Yeah, I think you come alive when you serve. And if there's part of you that's been dead or it's just been on the shelf, like when you're using all your gifts and you're seeing lives transform, there's nothing better. So when you give your life away, when you invest in other people, like people are eternal. And you've got to really focus on what your core message is, what you're really called and gifted to do in this world to make this a better place, and then go all in. There's going to be a cost. Some people won't like what you're doing. And there's going to be some pushback, some shade, anything that's out there on social media, there's going to be a lot of haters. So just know that's going to happen already. Don't be rattled. Don't be surprised. And just keep going, lock arms and collaborate with people who have the same values and shared passion. And I'll add this, your performance is never your identity. When you're doing all these things and everything's going great, just remember who you are is not what you do. And, you know, my identity shift was from soccer and academics and achievement into just knowing I'm loved by God. And that security and that freedom that comes when you know that, uh, I mean, for me, I decided to follow Jesus at Dartmouth College. Never read the Bible before that. It was kind of a radical change in my life. But I'll tell you, that relationship, it touches everything I do. It's not compartmentalized into like one day, one hour, one building. And when you're abiding in that kind of love, you have a source greater than you and you're asking for wisdom and love, it's going to flow through you. So there's no limits to what can happen in 2023. Uh, don't put too much pressure on yourself all about one resolution. Instead, it's that full life that comes and think through how you can serve other people. And I'll, I'll add this to inner health is where it starts. 
So I, I mentioned before, forgiving other people, gratitude. You know, what's the internal condition of your soul? And it's not going to come through buying stuff. It's not going to come through chasing after pleasures. It's a deeper peace. And I think together we need to learn how to love each other. And when you are at peace with who you are and you're secure and you're loved, and that love is um, solid, indestructible, then you're going to be able to love other people more and take some relationship risks this year. The best things happen, I believe, when we pray, listen, and take some relationship risks. So that's my encouragement. I know we covered a lot in a few minutes, but uh, we're, we're just rolling into the new yeah. year. Excited about what's exactly. going on. JesseBradley.org, correct? Is that's correct? right. Thank you. And then also, uh, we're, you're still doing the World Cup stuff, or is that a, is a, the commentary? Where That's right. I'm on CBS Sports tonight. Uh, looking forward to that. And uh, we're diving in. Coming down to the finish, I picked Argentina, so I'm going to stick with them the whole way That in the beginning of the tournament. Messi, it might be his finally his turn to, to grab the World Cup trophy. And then social media, Jesse J. Bradley on all platforms. Love to hear from you, hear your story. Whatever you want to talk about, uh, let's do it. I love connecting with people. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. I'm excited to welcome first my co-host, Dr. Ted Groundler. Dr. Ted, how are you? And I continue to have these fun, fun conversations. You never know, but he is Mr. Researcher in the kind of questions he asks, right, Dr. Ted? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a movie expert, so I, I have to do a little bit of homework in, in order to ask some halfway intelligent questions. Oh, see, so. I don't. I just have conversations with people, and we and I find out from them, and I make I, I ask the best follow up questions in the world. That's where my skill set is. In over nine thousand plus interviews, I can ask any follow up question, and it's so funny. A funny quick story, and then we're gonna let our guest on. Um, basically. I was doing an education talk show my first year, 13 years in the business as of January, I mean, as of December 6th. But I would oh. always say, why can't you come up with follow-up questions for education with whoever we're interviewing? They said, it's so hard. I said, this is the easiest thing in the world. I should have known. It's just, I can ask any follow-up question. But my guest today is uh, Jennifer Skliaskahan, uh, actress, uh, and much, much more. Jennifer, thanks for stopping by. And uh how did you first become an actor? What was, how did that process begin for you? Oh, that's an interesting story. Um, I actually fell into it accidentally. Um, I was 22. I was a new mother um, trying to get out of college and finish my degree. And I was working a few jobs. And at that time, this is 1993, you know, we looked in the paper, help wanted, and I would just get an odd job on the weekend. Um, and one of them was assisting for a producer who did rap videos. And he had me on, a, a, I did a series of videos with him, assisting him. And um, during one of them, one of the actresses was giving them trouble and they fired her and they said, you fit the costume, you can do it. <laughs> in the video it was, so oh. it kind of, that's where it started and then I thought wow I like this um I have a background in dance when I was younger I was in a dance company and my mother's an immigrant from Greece and so when I started leaning into being professional she put a stop to that because as she told me that's not why I came to this country for you to be an artist if you want to be an artist, you can go back to Greece. She oh, said, man. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. Um, so it, it was frowned upon, the arts. Not that they didn't appreciate the arts, but they didn't want me working in the arts. So when I fell into it later on, um, it it hooked. And, you know, I resisted it for a little while, and then I went in. And, and that's sort of how it happened. Jobs showed up kind of naturally. Yeah. Well, speaking of arts, I mean, it sounds as if you are nothing but arts, writing, acting. Uh, you're a musician, a pianist, mm -hmm. uh, producer. I mean, it's it's all arts. And so it seemed like you took like a 180 degree turn from the sciences. And and that's you. That that's that's where your skill set is. So that's uh, you got to do what you got to do. That mm -hmm. that's, uh, satisfies you. Uh, what was your major in college? Um, again, um, I said to my mom, you know, what about if I major in literature 
And because uh, I wasn't, I always wrote as a child and I read a lot. I sort of escaped through reading. Um, and she wanted me to have a skill and she wanted me to be a lawyer. So in order for me to have her help me pay for college, um, she said, you have to study political science. So I was a political science major. I, I was a double major, journalism and political science. I figured, okay, writing, what's close to that with a skill, journalism, which is not, it's very different. I did work as a journalist for a few years and I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, but um, it's funny because when I was majoring in political science, they ask you to concentrate on, you, know, you have to have a specific concentration. And I picked Soviet foreign policy. While oh. I was in school, the Berlin Wall came down. Oh. My history teacher said the day after, well, you all overnight became history students <laughs> because the Soviet yeah. Union had fallen. So yeah. um, I, I left. I was a journalist for a few years and really slowly but surely angled into the arts. Mm. But it took me a while because I had... Um, because it wasn't what was expected of me. No. So, you know, but I'm glad I found it. It haunts you until you you do it. It doesn't no. leave Exactly. And think about poli sci, the political science, because I did do a lot of poli sci courses when I was undecided at Western Maryland before I transferred to uh, LaRoche College for history for my undergrad and got my master's degree at Duquesne. I really found it fascinating studying studying political science. I don't know. I don't know why I wasn't really in my freshman year. I was playing basketball and didn't really be folk, but it was such intriguing stuff, isn't it? So studying it, it, it's the way the world works. Yeah. And just how it works and what understanding those things and really diving deeper into things, it, it's it's very, very interesting in my opinion. It's it's something that we need to know our political system, how it works, what happens and why it happens and specifically what why our government works the way it works. And so I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed teaching government when I was teaching history. So let's kind of jump into specifically enough. What do you think your greatest moments so far in acting have been? Um, I think, well, I wrote a script that was a short that actually was pulled out of a feature length uh, script that I is in development. And the house in the middle of the street did emerge out of that. Th that world is still operating. Um, but I, I wrote a piece about a woman. And at the beginning of the film, um, and I played her, her name was Matilda. And, and the, the film is called Matilda. Um, you don't really know it's it. I won't, I won't spoil it, but um, you know, we enter into her world and it's a very isolated world. Um, and we've, and that part was very, was, was a challenging role to play um, because she faced all her fears in her apartment in that one night. Um, and came to a resolution and made a decision by the end. But, um, you know, I think it's really exciting as an actor to be able to really look at um, what it what it is to be human and the thoughts that we think and the actions that we take and the consequences that we have to face. And um, as an actor to really go there, you're always, you always have to look at yourself too. So, you know, I feel like that was probably the most interesting role that I've ever done. And um, I, I, I felt like it changed me as a person really mm. to go through that. Well, it was very dramatic. Yeah, definitely. Um, can we speak of short films? Because other than going to film festivals, I, I don't have any exposure to short films. And I'm curious as to if they are much more difficult to do than a feature length, because you have less time to get what you need, uh, the point of your short film across. Um, I think it's I think that format um, is very difficult because you you have a very limited amount of time to develop a story and to get people to care about what's going on in the character. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, whoever's involved in the making of it 
you, you know, everyone has to love what they're doing because it's grueling. The hour you have to work very long hours. The post production is, you know, it's it's uh, it it takes um, a lot of heart, and you have to want to do it, you know, to get enough done. Um, the editing is pretty difficult because again, you'll film much more, more likely than you need, but you have to, you have to give up certain scenes and performances that are beautiful and that are interesting in order to really keep that arc concise so that mm -hmm. people understand there's a beginning, middle and an end. It's, you know, the punch is the best thing. And I think for short films, most um, are proof of concept for something, a larger world, yes. you know, that, that the story's coming out of. Well, it sounds a lot like when you're trying to, to write, it seems like being succinct is much more difficult to do, but yet much more effective. And so it sounds like it's the same with a short film as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now cool. this latest project, the house in the middle of the street, uh, it's very, very interesting. It's, I, I was intrigued by it because it, it brings some of your Greek heritage into this and then also how it's talking about children and stuff. So tell us about that project. Right. That story came out of this larger world, this feature that um, is in development um, because I used some of the characters from that world in this one. But um I was writing a few short scripts. One of them was filmed in a day. We filmed it. We kept it really short. It's it's coming out next week, actually, um, called Tonight Is Your Night. Um, and I wrote a second one that I'm going to, I've never directed. I will direct it in February. Um, so my agent at the time uh, had read those two tiny scripts. And she said, you know, she encouraged me to keep writing. Um, and I had a few storylines. I had about three storylines running very different. One of them took place in this house, the house in the middle of the street. Um, and it, you know, it, it's hard to explain how it happened, but um, I was waking up at like 530 in the morning last year, beginning of October, and I was playing with two storylines and this one really pulled me. And it sort of wrote itself, like some of the characters, that I know from my larger script showed up, the character of Minerva who owned the house and passed away and then bequeathed it to her next of kin. Um, it And I got up every morning, I sat down and I just started to write and it, this came out. I mean, I really don't know where, where it came from, the boy and the girl visiting, but um, you know, if you saw some of it or you read a little bit of it, they really represent, I think it's a very simple story about, again, um, facing your demons and having boundaries and seeing signs in your life that are telling you maybe this is dangerous, but you overlook it or mm -hmm. other people overlook it in your life and you try to get them to see what's happening, but they won't. And ultimately you have to decide what you let into your life and who you let into your life and who you don't. Um, and the children really, you know, they represent the demons that pull you away from who you really are. Mm. Um, and I believe in my life experience that, um, you know, the, the world is filled with everything. Um, but None of us are really victims as adults. Maybe ch children can be innocent victims. But when you're an adult, if you have any kind of awareness, um, it really is your choice whether you let something into your space or not. And that's really, that, that's what the children are. And the choices that the family members make, and they all make different choices on, on how they want to live, you know, and um, you know, in a very simple sense, it's, it's about boundaries. I just placed it in a world that is mystical and, um, you know, with mythological creatures. And, and I, and I do think like, you know, as someone with Greek heritage, 
my family always like read me stories and I, I, I was immersed in all the fairy tales um, from all the different cultures. And I really enjoyed storytelling. Um, my uncle would always tell stories orally. And, you know, I, I believe that that's how we've always learned how to live. You know, those old stories are not just entertainment. Um, they help people in ex with extreme conditions understand what the world is uh -huh. and, and, and how we live. Um, so I, it's interests me. I love that, you know, and were I love things like that. Were your family stories as detailed as this? Um, my uncle was a storyteller. I would say yes. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a gift. Yeah. I was going into so much of the detail. I was trying to figure out if there was some meaning to like number 17 for the house. <laughs> yeah, there is meaning. There is a meaning for it. Um, is there? it's, well, it, it's, a, it's a, it's a number of a house that I lived at. Okay. And, um, many of the symbols in the story come from my life even though you know did creatures show up at my door you know and, and and pull my father away no but um the glass jars for instance when I was a child for whatever reason my family they were hard-working immigrants and they didn't really celebrate we didn't really celebrate Christmas growing up it, New Year's was really the 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 holiday to celebrate um and, you know, in Greece at that time, like Little Christmas is more European, um, you would exchange gifts at New Year's Eve. So that was really the celebration. And everybody was very joyful. And I got very serious right before midnight. Mm -hmm. And I would take a glass jar and run around and catch the air in, in the jar. And then I would put the year on it. And oh, wow. I, for some reason, I believed maybe it was a story I read and I don't recall, but I believe that catching that would catch anything that was not meant to go into the future. And it would help us start a new year in a great way. So, I mean, and then one day I stopped doing that. Um, it was just a childhood ritual. Um, but it, while I was writing, it came up in my mind. So I just mixed it in. So I think there's always like, you know, you use your own life. And, um, and I've definitely experienced uh, growing up because I grew up in a very large family, people who, um, certain things that, that were bad that happened or that were dangerous that happened and certain family members would overlook it mm -hmm. and deny it and others would see it. And so I learned from a young age, um, to follow your intuition. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and and there are things that you have to do to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you just, don't them, other yeah. things happen. Yeah. Just one other thing that I wanted to mention about this. I didn't want to go too far, but the narration on this is beautiful. Okay. And I'm curious as an actress, where you, when you're doing lines and then to have to do in the narration like this, it sounds, it's a very different type of acting, is it not? Yeah, it's, de it's definitely different. Um, you know, it was the first time I ever did narration. Mm -hmm. wow. And um, I mean, this really, this story was an experiment. You know, my agent was, had a hunch that it would be good. And so she kept pushing me to do it. And I did. And my husband's a musician and he has a studio and he said, you know, why don't you record it? Um, and you can use my sound engineer. And he has a very simple setup. It's a whisper room. Mm -hmm. Small, you go in and he he hooked up a mic and actually um adrian who was the engineer who's amazing um he only had one day to do it like <laughs> available because he's he was going to switzerland so basically i finished the story a few days before new year's eve last year at like 10 a.m i was up early trying to finish it up um and i met him at noon and we spent three hours and i laid it all in one day and oh. I just, I loved doing it. It was so much fun. And I thought, wow, I definitely want to do this again. It just, um, I felt like I was on the journey. I mean, it was really amazing. So mm -hmm. something, definitely. and now I am starting to work like tomorrow. I, I'm doing an audio podcast and I'm starting to work in that field, which I never thought I would. See, I, I love the voices. Yeah. Thanks. Go figure. 
one opportunity changes everything to where you're going. And I want to go back to these demons. So what do you, if you relate demons to us in a everyday life, because again, looking at this, listening to it, and then coming back and our audience, your fans as well, understand the demons. What, what, what are signs of these demons that you talked about from childhood in this that we see today of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that very specifically, like the way I wrote it, the children show up and they ask to be invited in. So, you know, that's one thing that's very specific, like that, you know, you have to invite them in. And I think that, um, I mean, basically, I, I think the world, I think it's a metaphor for addiction and codependency and, um, and, and not just drug addiction or alcoholism, but there's a lot of addiction out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I call them the creatures of more. And in, in Plato's Odyssey, there are harpies and they feed they need more. You can never satisfy them. And that's sort of what I was feeling. Like I've had experience with addiction um, in my life and in people I love. Um, but also this consumption that we have, you know, it's 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 a there's we can never in some areas we can never be satisfied. So that's what they were representing. And um, the woman of the house, Rebecca, she becomes. um entranced by them and she can't break the spell so she actually gives up her whole family Mm -hmm. um and i don't think that's far from the truth of our lives sometimes that we'll overlook things over and over and let's say it's not even as dramatic as uh, a mother who's a drug addict who 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 is separated from her children but what about a mother or a father who's so overindulgent or engaged in whatever it is to such an extreme that they don't notice what's really going on anymore. And they don't notice what they're responsible for mm, and who it affects, you know, but at the, you know, I, I mean, I, you got to the end and I do think like the moral at the end, I mean, I like that kind of setup that, cause the truth is, look, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. Life is life, but we can always learn something and, and, wake up one morning and start new so you know you can you can make choices and draw lines easily if if you notice them where's the best oh. place oh so that dr tab one more thing. Oh, oh very just very quickly storytelling is becoming more of a more of an important art to all of us in business uh, when you're trying to get across what you do how you do it how you stand out amongst others trying to write that story is an art and uh, and that's one thing that I think everybody can learn something from is, is to keep doing it. Cause as you do it, you do, you get, do it better. And there's always a point to it. Totally. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So where can we, people check you out? Best place to, to check out all your projects and stuff. Where is it? Um, my website, Jennifer Scaliascahan.com. I, my um, production company is 18 bleaker films.com and social media, Instagram or TikTok. Um, I'm also doing four readings. I did one last weekend of the house in the middle of the street, and I'm doing another one this weekend on the 17th and then the December 23rd. And then I'm going to finish it on New Year's Eve because the story ends on New Year's Eve and that's live on Instagram. What times are those? They December 17th, this Saturday, 10 PM Eastern time. Um, and Friday, the 23rd. 10 p.m. and on New Year's Eve, 10 p.m. as well. Very so, good. Yeah, well, that should be fun. Thank you for um, showing up and and being interested in it. And um, you know, the one last thing I'd like to say is that the story also touches on generational trauma, um, and that's really what the curse right. uh, is a metaphor for. And I think um, I think that you know, the, the young girl that grows up in the story at the end, because she's aware of what's happening, she's allowed, she can stop it. 
So mm-hmm. me, I like I hope some people walk away and and feel that and know that and that maybe even get inspired in their own life to say, oh, no matter what's happened, like if I see it, I can make choices for myself. So there's so much going on around us. You have to critically think for yourself. It always comes down to you got got to keep number one in, in mind. So that's that's what you did. Yeah. Thank you. No, you know what, Jennifer, Thank it's just it's it's about like as you talked about doing this, how it opens up other opportunities, but doing also, what do you, what is your ultimate hope uh, for your career in acting? Where do you want to see yourself? Um, well, I, I will finish this story there. It is a series. So okay. we'll get to know why this happened and, and um, how it unfolds. Um, but, you know, I am going to direct uh, next year um, a little story that I wrote and I would like, you know, and that's an experiment. I'll see how how that feels for me. But, um, you know, I'd love to just have roles that are meaningful to me and other people and um, and continue to write. All right. We appreciate it, Jennifer. Thanks. Take care. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. everyone and welcome to strategic wealth strategies and i'm with our host alan porter alan what's going on man how are you and you just keep on bringing these heavy hitters that know what they're talking about and i learn so much on your show every time i talk to you well it's, it's great to be here it's especially great to be here with with uh, dave mcknight he's one of the top educational people that i've ever become involved with like tom hagan last week as I, I've, I've told you before, that David and Tom have probably taught more people about financial aspects that they never knew before. They, they think outside. They think outside the conventional financial planning box, and uh, they basically create, create a paradigm shift in what people think about conventional financial planning. Instead of the 60-40 stock split, there's a lot of other opportunities out there, and David has a great way of showing it. He's a he's a a great author, one of his great books is The Power of Zero. That's I give give copies to people all the time. But uh, David, it's great having you on here. It's an honor to have you on my podcast, and I'm looking forward to this. It's a pleasure to be here. Go ahead, Neil. You're, 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 you're muted, Neil. I said, what question do you have for David first? Well, David, uh, the latest thing you had, uh, the book, The Infinity Code, is that correct? Right. That's quite a, quite a book. Uh, it just kind of, well, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so The Infinity Code, I've, you know, I've written boring business books for the last 20 years, and I thought, hey, um, why not write a novel and couch a business-type concept within the plot? And um, I've long railed against modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory holds that a country who uh, denominates its own debt um, in its own currency can print as much money as it wants to pay for an unlimited menu of services and, and benefits that they offer to its population. So, for example, um, Stephanie Kelton, who's the probably the most well-known advocate of modern monetary theory, she says uh, she wrote a book called The Deficit Myth, which basically says that, hey, so long as we're, we can print money, we can... Um, you know, we could we rack up as much debt as we want, and we can always pay the interest on that debt because we can always print money. Well, there are very, very few mainstream economists that agree with this. And so I decided to make modern monetary theory the um, central uh, focus of a very um, Dan Brown-like um, story that's a thriller. Um, talks about uh, 20 Harvard graduates who graduated in 1985, and they um, form a secret organization where uh, with the hopes that one of them will rise to the office of the presidency. And once that person does rise to the office of the presidency, they can then foist modern monetary theory on the nation with, of course, disastrous consequences. So the central protagonist, Ian Becker, becomes aware of this plot and has to um, sort of 
crack a code before before this person gets elected president. And so the entire plot wraps, uh, wraps around this idea that modern monetary theory, which is a real life principle that a lot of politicians and economists um, on the fringe sort of espouse, that could be very, very dangerous to the future of our, our nation. So the idea was to write a really cool, compelling um, story built around something that sort of ripped right, right from the headlines. Well, and so David, the coming up with this idea to take what you do and then write it into fiction novels. How did you come up with that idea? That's really interesting and intriguing because yeah. you're going to get people that are intrigued by your message, but also entertain them at the same time. Yeah, there's a very well-known business writer by the name of John Lencioni who um, sort of couches all of his business principles within a story. And it just makes it easier to read. The story sort of shepherds you through um, the entire principle and you don't even feel like you're being taught. You're just absorbed in the story and you sort of learn these concepts by inference along the way. And so I've long liked to write fiction and I've done one other book that was written in the same way called The Volatility Shield. And it just is, um, it's a little bit more fun than, than writing the same old boring business book. Um, so I decided to mix things up a little bit this time around with a very clear clarion call to um, the federal government and people who read this book that we're in danger should this type of thinking gain gain uh, traction in today's economy. Mm. Well, David, I mean, that that book and, and the volatility shield, that was that was really interesting. I give it to this guy and he says, that kind of reminds me of myself. And I said, it reminds me of a lot of people that I talked to. And, you know, the importance of planning uh, for retirement. I've got a gentleman, a young guy. He was 23 years old when I started talking to him. He's 28 right now. And he wanted to do a uh, alert, a life insurance retirement plan back when he was 23. He kept putting it off, putting it off. He couldn't afford it. no problem. And so now he's coming back to me. And I showed him a day. I said, in fact, I just talked to him a minute, minute ago. I said, when you started out at 23, your death benefit was $279,000. Now at 29, your death benefit's $136,000. And I said, your your income, tax-free income, when you're 66, was 121. Now it's 79. That's that's what procrastination costs people. And they don't understand it. And the other thing people don't understand is the effect of taxes. And what, what you have shown me on, on how to like that one couple pages in the book, Power of Zero. These people have a million dollars in assets, but you show me a way into which I can turn them into, they have pay zero taxes in retirement by converting Ross, uh, long-term, not for, not for long-term, but but uh, the long-term, uh, excuse me, the, the, uh, the LIRP and many other things because like some people say, well, I want everything in a life insurance policy, you've taught me, no, you don't want everything. You know, you diversify your assets because the standard deduction for a 65-year-old next year, I believe, is $30,000. So you can make $30,000 off your stock portfolio or whatever that's taxable, and you're still not going to pay any taxes. But something uh, that you one of the first guys to teach me, it does not affect the taxation of Social Security or the means testing of Medicare Part B, which is going to be absolutely thousands of dollars in retirement when people can't afford to pay it. Yeah, um, I think you struck on something really important that the LIRP has a lot of really interesting qualities that um, are certainly germane to um, a broad swath of the American population. But the but the LIRP, as as good as it is, and as and as copious as the benefits are, it is not a one size fits all silver bullet panacea type deal. It's um, you know, it's it's a, a nice complement to all of the other tax-free streams of income. Um, I usually talk about six different streams of tax-free income when I talk to my clients and prospects. Um, we're talking a Roth IRA, Roth 401k, Roth conversion, mm -hmm. uh, taking money out of your IRA up to standard deduction, as you mentioned, um, and having that, you know, having that income be offset by your standard deduction. Um, <clears throat> the LIRP, which grows safely and productively in a tax-free environment. And then finally, if you can keep your provisional income low enough, then your social security can also be tax-free. So I, I try to espouse an approach where people take advantage of all the nooks and crannies in the IRS tax code. Um, I don't. I think that all of those different streams of income have attributes that make them unique. 
we should be taking advantage of all of these different tax-free buckets the IRS makes available to them because at any point in time, they could legislate any one of these streams of tax-free income right out of existence. And you need to have all the other ones there to buoy you up. And so the LIRP is certainly just a part of the puzzle. The one thing I do like about the LIRP is it's got that death benefit that doubles as long-term care. Uh, and should you die peacefully in your sleep 30 years from now, never having needed long-term care, someone's still getting a death benefit, probably your kids or your grandkids. So there isn't that sensation of having paid for something you hope you never have to use. So um, yeah, the IRS has has a lot of opportunities um, to, to shield ourselves from that coming tax freight train that we know is bearing down on us. Uh, David Walker, former Comptroller General of the federal government, predicted in his book way back in 2010, Come Back America, the tax rates would have to double in the year 2030 or we go broke as a nation. There's another economist by the name of Brian Bolu. He said the perfect storm of aging baby boomers, the cost of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest on the national debt is going to converge in 2030 in a perfect storm and could send our country sort of spiraling into a Great Depression unless we do something about it, you know, five years ago. So there's a lot of stuff that's coming down the, the pike. Um, I focus generally on the reality that tax rates even eight years from now are likely to be dramatically higher than they are today. And guess what? Every year that goes by where we fail to take advantage of historically low tax rates is potentially a year beyond 2030 when we could be forced to pay the highest tax rates that we're likely to see in our lifetime. You know, one of the things too, David, is, is they don't, uh, people don't understand long-term care. And I've been, been affected by this personally because uh, several years ago, my son became 100% disabled and it took us almost three and a half years for him to get his disability. But three years after he became disabled, the mother of my two granddaughters, uh, Lynn, at age 39, sent me a text January 5th, 2010. I'll never forget it. Alan, I've been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. They give me six months to live. Now, I knew nothing about insurance. So I like, like everybody, I thought insurance was a death product that you had to, to die to benefit from it. But long-term, I mean, uh, life insurance is the only product that will protect you if you live too long, die too soon, or get sick. But what I didn't know, she could access up to 90% of her death benefit, which is an internal illness rider on her policy, completely tax-free. And if it had not been for that, my son would be bankrupt. And it took a huge financial strain off of me. And that's when I decided I need to educate people on what's out there, what's available, because it affects so many people. I'm very, very passionate about what I do. Yeah, unfortunately, you have the likes of Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman. I mean, Dave Ramsey says, hey, the only person that would ever do an LIRP or cash value life insurance is is, is a dupe that just hasn't, hasn't looked into it enough. If they were just simply research it a little bit more, i.e. read his website, then they would never fall for it. Uh, Susie Orman says, you know, if anybody ever tries to talk to you about using, you know, life insurance as an investment that you should never, this is a quote, never talk to that person again. Okay. Why is that? Why do they say those things? Because they're 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 operating under an antiquated paradigm. Basically, what they're doing is they're saying, "Hey, historically, these products have been laden with expenses. They're 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 cost prohibitive. Most of the money is going to the insurance company, particularly in those early years. Therefore, uh, and the other thing is they do they say, "Hey, look, you could be putting this money into your four hundred one k." Um, think of what you could get in your 401k. You could get eight to 10% net of fees over time. Why would you put your, you know, put your money uh, in a policy that in the case of whole life might only grow three to 5% net of fees over time. So there's this, there's this, um, you know, I, I say, Hey, look, the LIRP is not designed to compete against the stock market. It's designed to be a bond replacement. Tom Hegna, he may have even said this last week on your podcast. He says, if you simply reach into your stock market, reach into your retirement portfolio, take out the bonds, replace it with cash value life insurance, your uh, returns will go up, your risks will go down, your standard deviation of your entire portfolio will fall and you'll have a better outcome over time. And so um, I think that in the case of Dave Ramsey, he's so fixated on selling term insurance because he is part owner in a term insurance company. Oh, that, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Okay. That benefits from that recommendation. Susie Orman, you know, Susie Orman, these folks are, they're, they're, addressing general, you know, uh, the broad swaths of the population who make 50,000, but they spend 60,000 and they probably aren't really the ideal candidate for cash value life insurance or the LIRP. So, um, you know, they all have motivations. You sort of follow the money, but I, but I think at the end of the day, 
these policies have come a, a long way. Um, insurance companies have re-engineered these programs to maximize their benefits, to minify, minimize their, their, their shortcomings. And it's just a completely different product today than what we've seen historically. And so um, I would love to sit down and Dave, with Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman and just look at the math. David Walker says math is the four-letter word that explains why tax rates have to double. I say math can be the four-letter word to explain why Dave Ramsey and, and Susie Orman are wrong. So, um, you know, that's what we're dealing with. And our job is to sort of educate the population, a retiring generation of baby boomers that, hey, LIRPs, when structured properly, can play a role, a complementary role in a balanced approach to tax-free retirement. Alan and I were able to interview a billionaire that had no idea about cash value life insurance, right, Alan? Explain. Yes, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. yeah, and the more money you have, the more you benefit from it. So no, this, really is, this is a famous, bill, this is a well-known billionaire. And he, uh, Alan, tell us about that story because that was just in our audio part of the podcast, not the oh, You know, he's a billion-dollar investor. And uh, I said, how do you think, uh, what do you think about cash value life insurance? And he says, well, you know, I've been told it's, it's great for, you know, put money in there and you can will to your, your kids and grandkids and things like that. And I said, well, it's also the greatest wealth transfer vehicle available today, bar none. And I said, uh, I have a friend of mine that's an advisor I work with. He has billionaire clients and they've got six to $700 million in life insurance to pay the taxes so, the, so that their uh, families can keep their assets. You know, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, like Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey, I said, I agree with maybe 50% of what they say. But are they licensed in anything? I doubt it. Are they fiduciaries? I doubt it. And all they're doing is, is putting in, I call them financial entertainers, David, because that's all they're doing. Yeah. And like you said, they're $50,000 below. That, that spend 60000 That's not the type of people that can buy an LIRP. Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about it, I mean, who is the typical person that follows Dave Ramsey? I mean, his best-selling book is... Um, you know, focused. I mean, it's got a picture of scissors and a credit card on the cover. Uh, so basically his main goal is to get people out of debt. And for people who are in the types of debt that Dave Ramsey is talking about, these people don't, they aren't the ideal candidate for this, these types of programs. And I, and I don't disagree that, um, that, that, that those people can be preyed upon by those who are selling um, cash value life insurance advisors who are maybe um, over-promising and under-delivering. So I, I wouldn't, but, but the problem is he paints everything with such a broad brush that all of our rec recommendations get tainted by it. We have people that have millions of dollars that go online and they research LIRP and they get a Dave Ramsey post that says, if someone ever brings it up, you should never talk to him again, or you're a dupe and you haven't done enough research. And so, you know, I, I think it's, you got to sort of stay in your lane. And um, so long as Dave Ramsey stays in his lane, I think he gives very sound advice. I think that when you're, we're talking about people that have more substantial wealth, and it has to. We have to have, sort of tailor our recommendations and give Gary very customized recommendations. I think that Dave Ramsey is sort of um, yeah. in over his head. We and who we spoke with was David Rubenstein about that, David. So right. if you wanted to have an opportunity to talk to Dave Ramsey, I'm the man who could end up having that that happen on, and you get to co-host with me. So that's the kind of cool things that I do with my show. So David, the thing is, what tips do you provide people now looking at the best way to invest right now? What should we do, especially, you know, with, with where the market's going, where you say, again, taxes are going to keep going up, stock market's going to go down for a little bit. What do you recommend is the best bet? Yeah, so I give less recommendations on the types of investments you should be investing in, more um, recommendations on the types of accounts within which you should be recommending. And in my book, The Power of Zero, I talk about three basic types of accounts, taxable, tax-deferred, tax-free. And I basically, the premise of my book is that in a rising tax rate environment, there's a mathematically ideal amount of money to have in your taxable and tax-deferred buckets. In your taxable bucket, you should have about six months worth of basic living expenses. That's your emergency fund. Tax deferred bucket, you should have a low enough balance such that by the time you reach 72, your RMDs are equal to or less than your standard deduction. That way, that distribution, that RMD is tax-free. It's offset by your standard deduction. And then anything above and beyond those ideal balances in those first two buckets should be systematically repositioned to tax-free. And you want to do that slowly enough that you don't rise into a tax bracket that gives you heartburn. But you want to do it quickly enough that you get all the heavy lifting done before tax rates go up for good, which I think is about 2030. So that means that starting in 
you know, 2023, we have 2023, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. So, so seven or eight years before tax rates have to go up and we slip into this predicted Great Depression. So it's really about contributing to the right types of accounts so that you can then distribute those dollars from the right types of accounts so that you can best shield yourself from higher tax rates down the road. You know, David, when you talk about Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey, they say credit cards and everything. And I've got, I'm part of the smart advisor uh, group and we show people how to get out of debt, but not have to, to change their lifestyle, but pay effective interest rate uh, to themselves instead of the compounding interest to the financial institutions. And they always ask me how we do this. And I said, well, I set up an SDIC, which is a specially designed insurance account. And, uh, and it shows basically, it doesn't quite pay it off as quickly as uh, the snowball effect that Dave Ramsey's famous for. But a couple months later, you paid up. But on top of that, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in a tax-free account and a, in a you know, tax-free death benefit that you can use for long-term care. There's absolutely no comparison. But uh, there's there's so many strategies out there, David, that, that uh, people are just absolutely not aware of. And as I told uh, Neil, you know, the stuff I'm telling you right now ought to be taught in high school. There's nothing complicated about it. It just ought to be it ought to be taught. But I've talked to people that have PhDs in economics. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, the, the fortunate part of all of that, Alan, is that more and more people are starting to come over into our camp when it comes to acknowledging that tax rates, even eight years from now, have to rise dramatically or we go broke as a country. I frequently tell the story of the white coat investor who um, I'm sure you're familiar with. The white coat investor is a um, is a former emergency room doctor who um, who had a penchant for, uh, you know, dispensing financial advice to his fellow um, doctors and, and other dentists. And so he sort of completely removed himself from the uh, emergency room scene and now dispenses financial advice full time. And he got a hold of my book, The Power of Zero, back in 2015. And he wrote this absolutely scathing review online, said, Dave McKnight is recommending Roth conversions. He says, tax rates ebb and flow over time. Uh, they're going to be high some years. They're going to be low some years. This is this you know, this. The future is no different than it has been in the past. David McKnight is scamming you by trying to persuade you to do a Roth conversion. And um, of course, I had to write him in a, learning, a, a letter from my attorney telling him to remove the word scam from his blog post, which he did. But a really interesting thing happened in the, in the lead up to the 2020 election. Joe Biden came out with his um, tax proposal and um, the white coat investor reads that tax proposal and posts uh, uh, makes a Twitter post in which he says the following. Uh, Joe Biden's tax proposal reads like an all out war on the individual investor. He goes, if Joe Biden gets elected president, I am going to convert my entire IRA to a Roth all in one year, which frankly, Alan, that's even, I wouldn't even give him that advice. I think that's a bad advice even for himself, right? Yeah. Um, I think I think that, um, you know, and of course I responded to his Twitter post by saying, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're coming around, at which point he blocked me. But the point is, you know, people, very, very few people are starting to, to doubt the math. I mean, David Walker's, you know, proclamation back in 20, 10, that math is a four-letter word that explains why tax rates have to double. The math is staring us all straight in the face, and nobody can doubt what the implications of that math um, are. And so even my most, um, you know, bitter antagonists um, are starting to acknowledge that these types of strategies make, make sense. And so um, I, I'm glad that people are coming around, but, but Alan, what our job is at this point is to help people understand that they will pay a tax and they will pay a tax before the IRS absolutely requires it of them, but we give them permission to not enjoy paying that tax so long as they recognize that if they postpone the payment of that tax until 2030 or beyond, it will be much higher than it is today. Well, I read a Congressional Budget Office report last month that said all tax rates, if they don't, if we don't raise by 66%, we're going to be bankrupt. We can't pay the debt, you know, the interest on the debt. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that uh, somebody told me the other day, they said, well, cash value life insurance, I, I, I don't like it. I said, well, let me ask you this question. You go to FDIC.gov and you can bring up every major asset of every major bank in the United States. And they have cash value life insurance as one of their top tier one assets. And these are supposed to be the greatest financial minds in the world. 
And if they think it's great enough for their corporations and their banks, don't you think it ought to be a part of your portfolio? And so they, of course, they check me out and they say,